Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. For more than three decades now, Anne Nock has worked in education and development. Commencing as a primary school teacher, she then moved into leading community development programs and school system administration. Now Anne works as an independent consultant and is completing her PhD. Her research focuses on how might we create environments where people thrive and how do we transform culture to sustain change. We covered so much ground in this interview, including how do school leaders embrace the messiness of change in structured, accountable and regulated school environments? And I asked her if she was building an education system from the ground up, what do you think would be some of its essential qualities? I've been a huge fan of Anne's work for a long time now, and I feel very fortunate to have facilitated this discussion. Please enjoy. Welcome, Anne. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I have been a, a big fan of yours for a, a long time, so I'm really looking forward to um, having a bit of a chat with you about some of the things that you're studying and some of the things that have your attention in education. But before we get started, what is your coffee order? It's always good to know. Yeah, I wrote depends. Depends, okay. Um, depends, yeah. I have, um, I guess I would be 80% long black. Fantastic. 20% a three-quarter latte. Amazing. Just depends yeah. on the mood you're in. Uh, what item is still on your bucket list that you have not ticked off? I would like to design and build my own home. Fantastic. Are you a fan of grand designs? Oh, hmm. I find they're a bit grand. Okay, no problem. Um, if you could have a dinner party with anybody, who would be there? Michelle Obama. Just you and Michelle Obama? I only thought of one. I didn't know. I didn't think about dinner party, but That's yeah, Michelle Obama and people like her. You know, I, I think I think a dinner party with just Michelle Obama would be enough. But we'll have a one-on-one, -on -one, Michelle and I. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And final rapid-fire question: What is the best recent purchase you have made for under fifty dollars? My new shorts from Uniglow. Fantastic. What colour are they? White. <laughs> Great. I love a good pair of shorts. It's summer. It's, it's summer. Coming up to summer. So. You don't need an excuse to buy uh, to buy clothes. It's fine. No, but you know, Uniqlo under fifty dollars can't beat it. Can't beat it. Um, well, going back to the beginning, Anne, um, what was your experience like at school? Yeah, beginning doing the dark ages. That's how I feel. Oh, I would never say that about somebody. No. But you can choose how far back that is. Yeah, I, I just remember this progression from even in in terms of um, the, like the physical environments. What a lot of what I deal with, mm. light, bright, early years, progressively like light, bright, full of movement to progressively darker and static. That's how I kind of how I perceive that progression. You know, the older things, the, the older you get at school, it tended to be the more the physical environment didn't matter and the light and air quality didn't and you just stayed still. And I think that's probably, um, probably why I didn't do so well at school. 
I just didn't find it a very conducive environment. I was watching, uh, I can't remember what the TV series was, but I was sure that it was filmed in my old high school as a set for the 19, this was in the 80s, but it was set in the 80s, but it was exactly the same. That's why they chose it. It was exactly the same. And I think this, just that. I think that's, yeah. that's, that's fascinating, Anne. And we will, um, we will uh, definitely unpack that, I think, throughout our discussion because um, I have the privilege of working in a primary school and I know that you've spent a lot of your time working in primary schools, which tend to be these wonderful, vibrant spaces with lots of colour yeah. and flexible furniture and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's interesting um, that you describe that progression yeah. throughout your schooling in that way. And, and I, I think, for me, I would have to agree. Um, it, it seems like... Um, Things seem to become a bit more beige as uh, as, as as you move forward. Um, what, what did you want to be? Just just to park that thought, because there's so much in that. I'd love to unpack that. Um, uh, like I said, as we as we continue. But what did you want to be at school, and look, did it change? I remembered that moment in grade two when I thought, looked up at my teacher with this longing look, thinking, I just want to be like you. Oh. And there was a real, I do remember that moment and there was a real sense of I actually wanted to be a teacher, you wow. know, and for a long time, yeah, that's, I guess that thought stayed with me. Fantastic. So it, it you, you pretty much did what you decided to do when you were, uh, when you were in year two. Yeah. I think that's, I, I think that's wonderful. Um, so um, what currently, um, Actually, no, what we might do is, is tell me a little bit about your experience in the school system because you've been uh, an educator for um, for quite a while and, and you would have seen a lot. Um, I'll move on. Um, you, you, would, you would have seen, obviously, had the experience of working in a, lot of, in a number of different schools, I would imagine, in a different context. And, and tell me about your experience in the school system and, um, yeah, tell me a little bit about your, your, your background. Yeah, my, my uh, teaching experience, I taught for 17 years. And that was predominantly in the independent sector. Um, I live in the eastern suburbs, so I was working in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And um, I started my career quite in a bizarre way in that I was a primary teacher librarian, which that was not usually your, your first job that you had was to be a primary teacher librarian. So in a way, it was really good um, grounding. I mean, I was obviously learning on the go and learning about accessioning books and things but generally I would have every class across the primary we would read we would read stories I would teach them information things so it was kind of like I had a, a whole range of um, students in those first few years before um, my first real class I spent a lot of time in the early years uh, k12 a little bit of time in three and a little bit of time in six grade six across that time fantastic and what um so you, you were teaching in class for roughly uh, 17 years um yeah, i was in schools for 17 years yeah fantastic and what are some of the other roles that you that you did during the time that you because you're currently not in a school is that correct no no um i have worked i i worked in the non-profit sector for a few years in child development programs that were delivered in a community in communities and that taught me a lot about um administration because when I was a primary school teacher I've never had to sort of I've never worked in an office to be honest I remember when I'd first left teaching and I was working in this non-profit 
and it was raining outside and I thought to myself, it's raining outside and I still have an hour for lunch. It was such a nice thought. Brilliant, yeah. <laughs> because with your primary school teacher, you know. And it's raining, you get no lunch. Throw down a sandwich and run back to the class. So, yeah, yeah I spent a few years sort of understanding administra administration and realised I had that sort of um, capacity to administer. Yeah. Um, and I, at the time, I also didn't see um, a school principal as part of my career progression. So yeah. I had to kind of work that out, what, what, my, what I saw for myself. And I'm, to be honest, I'm still working it out. But I spent some years, um, I spent some years uh, like as executive officer of a school system. So I was really responsible for the uh, uh, registration and accreditation for about 50 schools in New South Wales in that in that, oh, maybe it was 30, in that system. So I really understood that top-down accreditation and registration requirement. Great. And yeah, and then I worked at a school in-house consulting. Fantastic. It, it seems like you've had and continue to have quite a, a broad and, um, and diverse career, which is which is wonderful. Okay. Um, Changes my thing. Absolutely, and it, it, that's an interesting. That's an interesting point, and we will we will touch on that uh, a, a little later as well. So, what currently has your time and focus in terms of education? It may be education. It may be to do with family. It could be, could be anything. You would multi. Yeah. Um, this we are three quarters of our way into twenty twenty. That remarkable year. Wow. Um, I had already decided that this year I was going to spend the majority of my productive time completing my PhD thesis. So I'm at the final sort of year of that. And um, I've been, since 2018 and 19, I've been working as an independent consulting with schools on uh, design and change. But I figured I needed just to carve out time. So it was, it was really uh, fortuitous for me that um, people weren't getting consulting consultants in this year and I could actually, I could devote my time to writing my thesis. So that is what I'm doing right now. Most of my time is spent doing that. And other than that, yeah, it's family. Great. And what is your, what is the focus of your thesis? Yes, I'm going to glance up ahead because I have it written on the wall ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> so the whole, the, the thesis, uh, I guess the title is um, The Beauty of a Complex Future. and I have been enamoured by this notion of complexity and complexity meaning we know there's a way forward, we know we want to get somewhere, but the, the nature of our pathway is not clear to us. So we can't just use tried and true methods to get ahead because it's, we're forging out a new path. So how do we, in a complex environment, um, sort of create the future we want by not just going back to A, A follows B because we don't know what that's going to be. So I'm yep. looking at the success and the sustainability of change in innovative learning environments in schools. So schools might put it in a learning environment, um, expecting particular teaching and pedagogical practice, but unless there's attention paid to how do we work differently in these new spaces, they just become um, traditional classrooms again. Yeah, and, and do you think that uh, school systems, sorry, let me rephrase that. Um, are school systems and structures, in your opinion, quite complex entities? And if so, what makes them complex? The thing about complexity is, um, 
is that we know the, the, the value where we want to head, but we, we don't assume we know how to get there. Mm. I talk about things called taken for granted assumptions. So we have all these taken for granted assumptions of what school needs to be, but often those assumptions were developed last century and the world is very different. So we need to have the courage to take a new path and the courage to find new ways to reach that goal or that value that we seek. The value might be engage students, personalised and differentiated learning. Well, we're not going to do that necessarily by using um, only traditional classroom methods. So I'm not advocating that we change everything, but we have a balance of how we work with kids and work in a classroom. Is there anything that, um, that people who don't work in schools don't understand about the school system? So that was a double negative there. Um, is, um, do you think people that aren't teachers understand how complex schools are? So people who aren't teachers have a point of reference of their own experience. Yeah. And the majority of, of adults' own experience would be fairly, um, would often be traditional. Therefore, um, there's often that phrase of, uh, it didn't do me any harm. But we don't know if it could have been better. That's right, yeah. That's the notion with that. So I don't think, I think school is such a ubiquitous experience for everyone that it's really hard for anyone to reimagine it could be different. Yes, yes. That's a look. That that's a really good point because you're. I mean, they, they may people may have turned out okay from schools, um, but you're right. It could have been. It, it could have been much better. And and I think it's it's really important. And do you think that the current educational climate, with uh, the the move of a lot of students learning remotely from home um, uh, during the COVID pandemic, do you think that's forced um, uh, schools uh, to uh, to question or even um, uh, more broadly people to question the role of schools and the role of education and how that's delivered um yes right, that's a very very big question yeah if look i guess what the first thought that comes to mind comes to mind is if we see education as delivery of content yes then we can do that over zoom or we can do that by standing in the front. If we see um, education as much more broadly um, tapping into and raising kids with skills, interests, abilities that matter to them, yeah. then a content-only focus challenges that. Yeah. So I guess, yes, you can do anything with Zoom. Oh, it's really hard, though. And then what I follow the British news a bit now. So they have been, uh, they didn't have any of their uh, end of year exams because their school year finished in May, June. Didn't yeah. have any of their school exams. Um, a fiasco in how they interpreted kids' assessment and, and went back to teacher assessment, teacher judgment as assessing whether they could go to university. They have now also canceled the higher level exams for 2021 and relying on teacher assessment. Wow. It's really interesting. The teachers need to know the kids. Relationships really important. You can't, if, you know, this has created this environment where maybe exams, we can't rely on putting a whole bunch of kids in a room. So 
I guess my desire is that from this COVID season that we, um, there might be things we learn that we go, hey, you know what? That's better. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. Really, really, really important. And I, I, I've been um, criticised of many things in my career. One of them is is being overly optimistic. And I think that um, while this has undoubtedly been a really difficult time of change and, and, and I, globally it's been quite tragic in terms of a horrendous loss of lives and the disruption that it's caused and I don't mean to downplay that in any way. Um, but I do also think that um, it's a time to really question a lot of things that we had assumed um, about schools and, and, and social systems and structures and so on and so forth. And I think you talked, um, you, you briefly uh, mentioned before uh, the importance of not kind of springing back to our to old mindsets and uh, and to make sure that we are not just slipping back into what's comfortable. And and you wrote um, on your on your website, I know that. Um, you, you ask some really, really important questions. Um, it says, the first one, I'm sure you know what they are. I'll just uh, refresh them. Uh, I'll just read them for the people that are listening. First one is, how might we create environments where people thrive? And the second one, how do we transform culture to sustain change? And I was just wondering if you could spend a few minutes um, unpacking those and what they mean to you and why it's such an why they're such important questions to be asking in today's context. So the environments where people thrive, I think as adults, we need to look at the environments in which we thrive. Yes. And then bring that empathic understanding to our students. Yeah. I said to you before, um, do you know that obviously for me, the physical environment is something that I feel. When I said that primary early years of my schooling was bright, I, I, my memory goes to bright and I'm just, think of progressively darker and progressively more contained. And I, I asked the question as I don't understand why as children get older or students get older that we need to lock things down so much more. When if we look at, um, you know, even shopping centre and hotel lobbies over the last few years have become these places where you just want to go and hang. Yeah. Yes, we create environments for people in schools, historically, that have been really, um, get back to the content. How do we deliver the content? Let's put them as many kids as we can in a room and... It's bad Reality, I think we all learn different ways. I, I've set up an office here where I work and it's really important for me that this office is a pleasant environment. That matters to me. Yeah. Some people don't care. And that's yeah. fine, but we can't, it's, there's environments where people thrive, understand the people who use them and start with an empathic perspective. Then the transforming of culture to sustain change. And this goes into what I'm writing about and studying for my thesis is that, is this whole idea of um, bottom up change or top down directives. We are in education and in many settings, we are, have been through so many cycles of top-down change. This is what we're going to do. Instead of saying, um, here's the purpose and the goal. Remember I said before, complexity sets the value. Here's the value we want to achieve. We've got some great people in this room. Do you reckon we could work it out together? Could we have a structured scaffolded approach to working out how we can value this, create this value and goal yeah. bottom up? rather than top-down change. 
Wow, that's it, it's really important, I think, and, and there, there does seem to be a um, uh, th those questions seem to be more powerful uh, now than ever, I think, and asking those questions. And I know for me, like I've I've got two little girls, and and at some point they will go uh, into an education system, and so I mean I've always thought of these questions are important because obviously being in front of a class and so on and so forth. But I think for me, like now that I've got little kids, it's all of a sudden become that mo that much more personal right. I think, to ask right. the questions. I think it's really, really important. Um, so how, like, um, uh, let, let's look, let's unpack that question about how uh, creating environments that people thrive just, just a little bit. How do we do that? Like what, um, could, what would that look like, do you think, in a class, in a school setting, if it was an environment where people, people really thrived? So let me, because the work, I'm not so in, the students are my end point. Yes. I do this for the kids, but I work at I work schools at a staff level or a leadership yeah. level. And I think it has to do with um, we need to carve out time for people to be able to engage around questions that matter. Great. Take away things that can be information disseminated in other ways. And I, I believe if people were in, they were engaged, say teachers, yeah. engaged in the problem of how do we create a better learning environment where our kids are going to thrive and then work through a structured process. Like what I've discovered over time, because I do a bit of facilitating as well. If it, the goal is to guide, the facilitator's goal is to guide people through a structured conversation to a conclusion and or a, or a applying a design thinking process you could do that yourselves as well but it's a way of saying um together we believe that each of us have within us the solutions that we may need how do we work through a process from a from you know idea through defining the idea and then prototyping and testing ideas i think one of the things i really thought about in this was um we and this goes down with complexity. We, we want kids to have a go, okay? And we recognise to kids that trial and error is a great learning way, a great, great learning tool. Do we do it as adults? As adults, do we give ourselves the licence to go, trial and error is okay. Trial and, trial and error are small steps. It's not like, try it and it's huge so the error is has enormous ramifications but if we do trial error little steps then creating an environment where we can prototype and test ideas great safely great it's, it's, yeah that, 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 that that's so important i think the thing that we forget is we are just mature children like yeah. we are just and but you you write this there's so much in that and there's so much to to unpack and and i think the thing that I would, would like to ask though is, is, is how do we, so why do you think sustainable change is so hard then? Because it sounds, it, it sounds easy, um, but it doesn't seem to be so. What are some of the challenges you think? Well, when you want to change a system, let's look at education, for example, because that's both where we are. When you want to change a system, why is it so hard to initiate that change? It gets back to what we were saying before about um, we've got inbuilt assumptions and understanding of what school is. Yeah, yeah. 
So that was what makes it hard. We have societal pressures on standards and accountabilities, and we do want our kids to learn and to, you know, progress. Yes. This, I'm not advocating a free-for-all um, approach. <laughs> but we do need, we have, so there's this, this kind of like the, in, in complexity theory, there's this thing called enabling constraints. So, and I love that term because of course we've got constraints, but they should be the sufficient constraints that they enable change to happen. So the, the time that we have for planning and time that we have on class, that's a constraint. We have to work within that. We have certain accountabilities. So maybe we, we get the enabling constraints on the table to say, you know what, this is what we have to work within. But once we know that, then we can go, um, Great. Yeah. try some crazy ideas and say, actually, they fit within our constraints, let's give them a try. So it's, I, I was thinking about this question and I was thinking about the fact of, um, we've got a house and if you think education is like a little bungalow house and we've added a room here and we've added a floor, we added another floor, we added a room at the back, we've added something at the front and we just keep adding all of these bits to it that yeah. it's actually ugly yeah. <laughs> and it's a, it's not very safe because it feels like it could fall over sometimes we need a to plan, plan. No foresight it's just sticking bits on top of it's it. on yeah yeah sometimes we need to clear the land we've got a patch of ground yeah yeah you know what we want to create let's i mean like you i'm an idealistic optimist so can we go Metaphorically, we've got a piece of land. What would we do if we could start over again? Yeah, great, great question. And that, re that, that leads so nicely into one of the other questions that we had. If you were building an education system from the ground up, we're talking in, in, in an ideal world, what, were, what would be some of its essential qualities? Um, what do you, what yeah. do you remember about, um, a happy year, a really good year in your school experience? As a student or as a teacher? As a student. Um, it's a really, really good point. Um, I went to a wonderful primary school in, in the middle of England called Long Row, um, and it was a, a beautiful country school. Um, I The thing that I remember most was, well, one of my favourite memories was in year six, uh, we were learning about World War Two, and obviously that is a significant part of uh, history lessons in the UK. And we built an um, an Anderson shelter. So we built a shelter, a World War Two shelter. Um, uh, and so we, I remember it was probably the size of a shoebox. It had this metal roof. Um, it was battery powered. So when you walked in, a little light would flicker. Um, it had fake grass. I remember the experience just being so hands-on. And then it, what, what was really important, so I remember the messiness and the chaos and, and trying to construct this thing and reading about it in a book and making it. And it just so happened that my grandparents, who lived in uh, Wiltshire at the time, had an Anderson shelter at the end of their, their, their uh, garden. So I, I went in it and had a look. So it was this, to answer your question, it was this ability to, to build something and, and, and to make this product and, and it was useful, but I could also relate what I was doing to um, uh, to something outside of my classroom. It was real, it was meaningful, 
we yeah. made mistakes, I worked with people, my teacher gave me feedback and I didn't actually, it didn't feel like I was learning. I had, and, and for me, I feel like I, 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 the knowledge was secondary. I just remember how I felt when I was in that moment in my classroom. Um, yeah. And, and, so and yeah. I, all of those, all of those experiences yeah. were important to you. Yeah. Your grandparents were part of the process. Yeah. You, your peers. Yeah. You know, you work with them. And what was the teacher like? Uh, it was Mrs. Stevenson. She was wonderful. Um, uh, I don't remember t her telling me how to do it. Yeah. I remember um, taking responsibility and going and finding the resources I needed and constructing something. Uh, in fact, I, I remember her um, initially um, uh, being there to stimulate the discussion about this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, I'm sure she checked in throughout the process and said, well, have you thought about this? Have you tried that? But I, I don't actually remember her being her voice being that loud in the process, if that makes sense. Um, she was there in the beginning of term. She was there the whole time. She didn't go off and have a cup of coffee. Um, but she was there at the beginning of term to really stimulate that discussion and that inquiry. Yeah. Um, and then she kind of just checked in uh, uh, um, throughout the term and um, just asked some really, really great questions. Um, yeah. So I remember her being strangely... Uh, I remember her being very present in the beginning and strangely absent in the middle. <laughs> Um, which which I think was great. And the, at the end of the day, we, we finished with this incredible product. But also, much more than that, it generated a, a real hunger and a thirst for history, um, which I have to this day. So, yeah, I don't know. It sounded to me like she had the freedom. She knew the content she wanted to get through, but she had the freedom for to, um, to go about that herself. One of the things that I find interesting about Finland is that the curriculum K-9, and it was there, this was a, a little while back, was it was a book that was about that thick, right? So that's K-9 curriculum for all subjects. Brilliant. Because it gave, here's the enabling constraints. Here's what we want you to work around. Now do it. So there was a sense of um, trust that the teachers could do that. But it's also the other side of what I'm hearing is the nature of relationship as well. And if I, I guess if, yeah, you know, how do we create that? How do we reinforce this idea that, um, uh, like, empowering students to be exploratory in their learning, and then the quality of the relationship with the teacher to um, guide and nudge and appreciate the student yeah. along the way. I mean, these are very esoteric. Yeah. And I think that's that's so important. And sorry to, to interject then, but I um, I remember I think it was year three. I had a teacher, and I, somehow the story of this teacher gets into every interview that I do. Um, but this wonderful teacher called Miss Jones, and we were going through a particularly tumultuous time in our family. And 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 I all I knew I don't remember a single thing she taught me that year. No idea what she taught me, but I remember walking into her classroom every single day and knowing that I was valued and that I was heard and that I was meant to be there. And, and I think, and I've remained in contact with her and, and expressed my gratitude to her, but I, I remember how she made me feel. Um, and she had 25 or 30 other children who I'm sure she made feel exactly the same way. But when I was in that classroom, it felt like I was the only one there. And, and so I, I think 
the relationships with students. I mean, we all we all know this, and the people listening would know this, but it, it, it's just so important. And you can have all the content in the world, and you can have all of the the great learning environments and the wonderful questions on the wall, and so on and so forth. But if you don't have that relationship with with your teacher, it seems to to, to not really matter much at all. Um, yeah, and the sad thing is that. Um the, t the constraints in terms of t teacher time for all of the administration that they need to do. Yeah. Sadly, it's into the luxury of just getting to know kids. That's the heartbreaking thing of education today, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think, um, I mean, obviously your, your focus with uh, the work that you do with professionals is, is obviously educators, so really focusing on um, on the teachers and obviously we all know that, that the research by Professor John Hattie that talks about um, teachers apart from the students teachers being the most significant in, uh, influences on student achievement and how uh, I just want to talk really quickly about self-awareness um, with, um, with with educators um, why do you think that's really important and how can we sort of encourage educators to be people that are more reflective and more self-aware so, because um, you, you, yeah, it's notion of being able to pause. I think, yeah, you know, have frantic lives that we, yeah, have a to-do list. To be honest, I, I, I don't cope well. with to-do lists. Oh, really? Okay. Really okay. don't cope with to-do lists. I find them overwhelming, and they're not the thing I need. I have to work out other ways because I find that list of things. So I'm liberating anybody here who finds to-do lists to be um, um, frightening. Find another way to do that. But I, love it. I love it. We may have found something that we uh, don't see eye to eye on because yeah. I, I love I love a to-do list. The issue is, is it, 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 things just get added to it. So I don't think I've ever completed a to-do list. And there's, there is that. List? Well, yeah. Have you got your to-don't list, you know, to sit alongside it? You know what? I did, um, I actually wrote an article about that because I got sick of writing about to-do lists. So I thought, why don't we just write an article about things that we don't do? Um, but yeah. anyway, that's that's an aside. So, so do you think um, uh, do you think it's important to teach that self-reflectiveness with our, with educators and that self-awareness? Yeah, and, and if we, so if, um, I'll reinforce a few themes here. Mm. If we're prepared to have a go and do things differently, trial and error, yeah. then we need to stop and say, that didn't work and nobody died. But I can, you know, I can... It's true. I can modify this, I can do that differently, I can ask my peer. Self-reflection can't be done on the hop. It actually needs that little time, that pause. That's yeah. why. I guess the first word I said. Yeah, re really important. And I think as well, coming back to your idea of, of time and time constraints is I think sometimes there's this view that we don't have time to waste having a go. We've got to do what we need to do to get it done, regardless of what the outcome is. Because this and a strong sense of accountability for the children that yeah. we take. Yeah. That's why. I, I, I know that's the fact that if I do something different, will I, you know, will I be... Um, undermining their achievements. I guess if we can iterate rather than make wholesale changes, we can make progress and doing things differently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
let's uh, just have a, a quick chat about the current um, educational climate with obviously uh, at the time of recording, we are still uh, in a, um, a global pandemic. Um, what are some of the lessons that you think we can take from this experience? We talked sort of briefly about asking questions about the role of education systems, but what do you think um, are some of the lessons that we can learn? And also how do we avoid um, snapping back into some of those old mindsets? I'd love to think that we we learn to do things that are we learn to do things differently. Um, that there's there are things that we can unpack from our experiences in 2020, and let's hope not 2021, but let's see um, that we go. We had never thought of doing it this way, and we're going to keep doing it this way. Yeah, I can't think of anything at the top of my head even in my own life, but I guess, um, so if, if content's important, then we can get, record things for kids, but spend the time with the kids. So maybe there's different ways that teachers can think, um, I've actually learned a new skill or done something differently here that's going to improve um, what, I, what I'm doing. The other thing, I like to work on this thing called the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule, right? So that I'm doing 80% of what I love, 20% of what I don't love. Um, I think that this season has really made us be uh, really evident of what matters to us and uh, human interaction matters to us so much. And I, over the last, those decades of trying to work out, and I'm still trying to work out what I want to be when I grow up. Same. It's, um, it's that sense of how am I on the 80-20? Am I okay on the, uh, there are times in your life when it's 50-50 or it's 30-70 the wrong way. And so different times of life have different things, but the, to work on that sense that I'm doing 80% of what I love, that's kind of what my goal is in, in my working life. And I, it's funny when you're writing a PhD thesis and you tell people they actually don't, most people don't know what it is I've discovered. I've discovered. So I just say, I'm writing a really big book about something that's really important to me. And I'm actually, I'm at my 80% with that now. I'm really enjoying the, the unpacking and the writing side of it now. So that's really, that's, that's where I am. Fantastic. And are you, um, are you optimistic or, I, I think I can answer this question for you, but I'd love to hear what you have to Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of education in Australia? Uh, look, yeah, I, I will say that in my, the realist part of me, you know, my, I, I talked about my idealist part, yeah. my realist part. My realist part is still a little nervous about um, what's driving educational change and if I, if, if I go back to one of the things that struck me with the Finnish education system has been the fact that education was a non-partisan um, policy in the country. So when a vision was set, it wasn't something what didn't become a, um, a, a policy change for the next election. I think we've been, there's so many swings and roundabouts we've had in education in Australia, I'd love there to be a sense of we have a collective agreement over a way we're heading. But I, but the, I guess the pessimist in me, which is about this much, yeah. 
kind yeah. of still thinks um, I'm not sure if at a, at a top down level it's going to happen, which is why I'm all about the bottom up. Yeah, amazing, fantastic. And I think you have to be, I mean, we're in the, the best job in the world. Like you have to be optimistic, but you also need to have that level of realism where you say, okay, look, I'm very um, optimistic about this, but I'm also, yeah. I also know that there are some issues that need to be addressed, which I think yeah. is important. Yeah, really. Um, a couple more, a couple more questions. Um, the uh, the second last one. Um, what would you say to an audience of new teachers that are about to enter the profession? It is such a it's such a privilege to be able to invest into the the life of a human. If we take it down to one child in your class, such a privilege to be able to do that and. Um, I guess, it, what does it take to be that memorable teacher? What was yours, Mrs. Jones? Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Stevenson, yeah. yeah. What does it take to be that memorable teacher in that child's life? And Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Stevenson probably didn't think that through, but they, but they invested in the student, in the individual. And I guess that's, to me, we, it's that whole metaphor of can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. Sometimes we are so caught up in what the um, education system and policy has to do, but always remember it's that human, that one person yeah. human that yeah. you've got charge of. Absolutely. It's, it's a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous privilege to get to stand in front of a, or to influence a group of people and a group of young people and help to, to shape them into um, who they are to become. It's, it's, it's amazing. And I, I, I pinch myself. I don't, I, I couldn't do anything else, uh, but it, it's really wonderful. But um, final question, Anne, where can people find out more about you and what you are doing? Yeah. So I am, I'm not as active as I have been. My, but at Anne Nock on Twitter is probably, and my, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. They're the professionals. I might, I might, if you find me on Instagram, I might be talking about my running. Yeah. So I'm a new runner. Yeah. And Welcome I also. To the club. Yeah. Sorry. Welcome to the club, the running club. It's a, it's a very special group of people. 10K in a month is the goal. Next, I'm, I'm nearly there. I'm not sort of starting at zero to 10K in one month, but yeah, so I'm, I talk about that on my Instagram, so you can feel free to laugh at my slow running. And andnock.com is my website. Mm -hmm.